Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after a long night, Aaron O'Toole, chosen as the leader of the Conservative Party, what dynamics are going to change with the federal government now that Aaron O'Toole is there? An article suggesting that with people traveling, they're actually increasing the risk of bringing COVID-19 back into the city. We'll talk about the impact that's going to have. And there is an eviction crisis looming in the province. What are provinces and cities, for that matter, doing to avoid it? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, get to politics on this side of the border. It was a uh, interesting race, uh, the conservative leadership race after, of course, the last election, and uh, Andrew Scheer deciding uh, that he was not going to continue on as leader. Uh, and in the wee small hours, Aaron O'Toole was declared the winner of the of the race, and of course, he takes over the reins of the uh, party that is uh, now the official opposition. Uh, a thousand questions surrounding what's going on here. And to that end, we're pleased to bring our good friend Steve Pakin, host of The Agenda with Steve Pakin on TVO, in to give us his read on things. Steve, good morning. Welcome to the program. And good morning to you. To just add to the very end. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I remember well, the last race, of course, went 17 ballots before uh, Andrew Scheer finally beat uh, Maxime Bernier. But that was a Saturday afternoon slash into the early evening. I can live with that. But, boy, I tell you, you know what? I t- between watching the Raptors last night and then the, the, the Bruins game and then watching this, I'm, I'm spent. I'm t- it was a long night. Well, you sound like you got lots of energy, so good for you. Whatever you're taking, send some my way. <laughs> Caffeine, that's what's working for me right now. Are you, were you surprised by the outcome? No. Uh, let's remember, Aaron O'Toole came third last time. So Andrew Scheer came first. Maxime Bernier left, started his own party. He came second. So in some respects, and, you know, the, Aaron O'Toole was the, uh, certainly had to be considered uh, one of the favorites going into this thing. I think what might have been a bit surprising is the rather poor showing of Peter McKay, uh, who had come out of retirement, remember, left five years ago, uh, went into the private sector, moved to Toronto, became a lawyer uh, at a Toronto law firm. Uh, his, whatever it was, 33 and a bit percent on the first ballot was dramatically lower than what he needed and what I guess most observers thought he'd get in order to win this thing. So that was a bit surprising. Yeah, they had said that on that first ballot, anything under 40, and it's, he's probably dead in the water, and that really turned out to be the case, didn't it? Absolutely. Yes, it did. Uh, Hamish Marshall, who was Andrew Shear's campaign manager in the last uh, leadership campaign and, of course, worked with him closely during his time as leader, uh, I'm sure you saw this tweet uh, this morning, said, uh, Peter McKay losing the leadership is like having a breakaway on an open net and missing. <laughs> I, I guess he had that coming, didn't he? Well, you know, just for your listeners who don't know what that's a reference to, that was something that Peter McKay said about Andrew Shear. Uh, after the last federal election in 2019, when uh, you know when all the bad things happened inside the Trudeau campaign, and yet uh, the Conservatives, despite getting the most number of votes, uh, did not win the election. So, um, revenge is a dish best served cold. Is that the question <laughs> we're looking for this morning? I think so. I think so. Uh, interesting, though, about how this is going to reflect on the party itself. There was a lot of concern about the way the party had been moving, especially under Andrew Scheer's leadership, Steve, uh, that he was paying way too much homage, some thought, within the party, way too much homage to the social conservative wing uh, who supported him and essentially got him over the hump against Maxime Bernier. Same sort of thing happened last night. Is Aaron O'Toole beholden to those social conservatives? This is a great question, and it is one of the biggest questions that the Conservative Party of Canada has to deal with going forward. I mean, here's the reality. Bill, the fact is, if this party wants to win, they need to find a million more votes. Okay? They got the most number of votes last time, but as we saw, given the way their vote is situated, you know, overwhelmingly in Western Canada, where they waste a lot of votes they don't need, they win ridings by 30, 40, 50,000 votes, it's still good to just one seat. You know, they need their vote more spread out, and they need to find a million more votes. 
The question is, what kind of what kind of brand, what kind of promise, what kind of policies do they have to put forward in the next election campaign? And we don't know when that will be, but presumably it'll be sometime in the next year, year and a half. What kind of what kind of face do they have to present to the country in order to find those million more votes? I don't think there are, there are too many political observers who would say that the party needs to be more conservative, uh, either economically or socially, than they were last time in order to find those million more votes. So how the new leader manages to stick handle through the promises that he might have made to social conservative groups, while at the same time reaching out to broaden the coalition of voters he needs in order to win the next election, that's the issue. And, you know, I don't envy him. That's that's going to be a tough one, but let's see how he does. I, I, I love your analogy about stick handling. Uh, Brian Mulroney, a former conservative prime minister who knows a thing or two about winning elections, mm-hmm. uh, mentioned this morning, he says if these guys uh, want to win the election, they're going to have to get their act together. He says Canadians don't want tax credits so they can buy hockey sticks for their kids. They need people who are going to address environmental issues, LGBTQ issues. That's not the wheelhouse of social conservatives. Well, I'd say this for Brian Mulroney. He's the only conservative uh, leader since Sir John and McDonald to win back-to-back majority governments. So when he talks, I'm interested in what he has to say. Uh, the fact is, whether you liked him or whether you hated him, he was a guy of big ideas, and he got those big ideas through. And he wasn't—he didn't play small ball. I think that's what he's referring to there. He yeah. didn't play small ball. He swung for the fences, uh, and and uh, and as a result, became an historic prime minister. Uh, the times feel, you know, the times feel like we need big ideas right now too, uh, Bill. And and if Aaron O'Toole can show that he's a guy of big ideas, uh, who can keep his party united, who can find those million more votes. Uh, you know, you never know what the outcome of the next election might be. I think it sets up for a fascinating contrast. I mean, let's look at the two leaders who are essentially the leaders of the two main parties in the country right now. Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, it's ironic. Both of their fathers were in politics. Mm-hmm. Right? Pierre Trudeau was prime minister, and John O'Toole was the conservative MPP for Durham riding, the same riding Aaron O'Toole represents, at the same time, uh, back uh, you know earlier in this century. They were both father and son representing the same writing at the same time, which I don't think has ever been done before. So their fathers were influential in getting them into politics. But, of course, Justin Trudeau is you know, exceptionally bilingual, uh, good-looking guy, beautiful wife, beautiful family. And Aaron O'Toole looks a lot more like the average Canadian and, and their family. You know, he's a little bit pudgy. Uh, <laughs> he's got you know, two very nice kids, but, you know, n- nobody's, nobody's going to accuse the O'Toole family of sort of emerging from central casting as, 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 you know, the glamour couple or the glamour family. And that contrast will be interesting as well. Uh, you know, J- Justin Trudeau is a very dramatic speaker, and a lot of people have pointed out about how sometimes over-the-top and breathy he, he comes across from time to time. Aaron O'Toole, as we saw last night at 1.30 in the morning when he gave his victory speech, very plain-spoken, very average guy, comes across like the guy next door, you know, as the, as the kind of, you know, suburban Toronto... Uh, family that uh, might be the the folks who live next door. There's no sense of sort of Canadian political royalty about the guy. So there are going to be tons of contrasts, both personally and in terms of policy and professionally, uh, in the lead up to the next election. And, And again, I'm going to be interested to see how that all sort of rolls out. 
We were talking about the influence of the social conservative wing, and, and which, of course, was still dominant, I think, in, in how things turned out last night. Very much so, yes. Uh, and as to whether he has to be beholden to this, and, and Andrew Scheer certainly did, and I think he took a lot of criticism uh, from some of the forward-thinking conservatives about that. But uh, it's not without precedent. I mean, Stephen Harper had that same backing when he became leader of the uh, amalgamated party of the conservatives and the, uh, the alliance. Uh, and for all intents and purposes, he ba- he pretty much governed from the middle. It was the the middle right, but certainly the middle. He did not cave in to the social democrats on things like abortion and and same sex marriage and things of this nature. He just wouldn't go there. Wouldn't allow his party to go there. It, it takes a lot of political courage to do that, but it can be done. Bill, I'd say that's a spot on observation. And I'd go further. I'd say Mike Harris did the same thing. Uh, Mike Harris, when he became premier of Ontario in 1995 also enjoyed the overwhelming support of the social conservatives across the province. And yet both of those leaders you just uh, pointed out, both Harper and Harris, uh, neither of them really moved, um, neither of them took significant steps to move the social conservative agenda forward. There was certainly no attempt to recriminalize abortion. There was no attempt to bring back capital punishment. Um, uh, You know, there there was a time uh, during Mike Harris's period in office where the Supreme Court made a decision requiring Ontario to bring, I think, five or six dozen laws to change those laws to make them consistent with um, same-sex benefits and rights, uh, which the court had decided that same-sex couples were entitled to. And rather than fight it in the Supreme Court or try to um, challenge it or do something like that, Mike Harris and his rather socially conservative um, uh, minister, uh, Jim Flaherty, Attorney General Jim Flaherty, uh, the late Jim Flaherty, they simply did it. They did it with no fuss or no muss. And it may have been a disappointment to social conservatives, but the fact is both of those leaders understood that um, that social conservatives were important to have in the big blue conservative tent, but that they couldn't rule the roost, if I can mix my metaphors there. And, and they were both hugely successful leaders, obviously. Well, Steve, from a strategic standpoint, and I'm sure this was the mindset that Harper had, and, and to a certain extent Harris, where else are they going to go? I mean, if you're a social conservative and you're not pleased and you think that you, your party is going too far to the middle, you're not going to vote, well, except unless you want to be a Maxine Bernie and you try to form another party. I mean, that, but the chances of that being successful are one in a million. So you're pretty much, you've got them in your stable. They may be disgruntled, but they're still there in the stable. Well, I uh, disagree with that. I, I, you know, they, they can do a couple of things. Number one, they can stay home. Number two, they can, uh, you know, I, I note in the election before, um, which one was it, 1990 election in Ontario, uh, the Family Coalition Party uh, was the recipient of a lot of those social conservative votes because um, nobody knew Mike Harris very well at that point. He'd only just been the leader for a couple of months, and um, and beyond that, uh, they weren't you know they weren't 100 percent sure in him. Once once the courting of the social conservatives and bringing them back inside the blue tent happened, well then you know their influence they can be very influential. They can be very helpful to a leader. The question then they were to Doug Ford. I mean, let's face it, that Doug Ford became leader of the Ontario PC party because all the social conservatives who were supporting the fourth-place candidate, Tanya Granick-Allen, went and supported him, and that put him over the top. And then he exiled her almost immediately thereafter. You know, you'll, yeah. you'll see again that, that Ford has, uh, while appreciating and taking social conservative support, uh, certainly is not beholden to it. And this raises, I think, though, one of the great issues of last night's campaign. You know, we've talked a lot about the winner here, which is appropriate, but to me... The equally big story, and I've got a piece on on the TVO website about this, yeah, yeah. Is, is Dr. Leslin Lewis, uh, who, as a black woman running, uh, you know, for the first time for leader 
having only run for office once before and unsuccessfully at that five years ago, takes nearly a third of the vote on the second ballot. I mean, that's unprecedented in Canadian history. So she's an, and she's an openly socially conservative candidate, and, and proudly so. So clearly, the social conservatives felt comfortable being back inside the big blue tent. We'll see if they stay there. They certainly were backing her with money and with resources. And the result was uh, a really, um, you know, astonishingly good performance from a political neophyte, which a lot of people didn't see coming. Oh, well, a lot of people started talking about her in the last couple of weeks of the campaign, so mm-hmm. I, I guess we're not totally surprised by her strong showing in this. But you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that if, if the, the stated goal of the Conservative Party now is to find another million votes to, to try to put them over the top and form a government, you and I both know, and I'm sure the people in the back rooms in the Conservative Party know, those votes are in the urban centers in this country, which they do not seem to do well in. Uh, you know, it's a Western-centric party and a, and a, a rural party for the long, especially here in Ontario. Uh and to embrace those urban voters, they're going to have to talk about the environment. They're going to have to talk about LGBTQ rights, uh, which may be beyond the comfort level of some of them, but it's, it's, it's a discussion they're going to have to have. Yes, and that's why Aaron O'Toole thinks he's the man for the hour, because he is, you know, in his heart, he is a conservative, but he's also a much more moderate, pragmatic conservative than I think he showed during the course of the uh, leadership campaign. Now, he, he ran that kind of more right-wing populist campaign because he needed to find a lane that he had all to himself. He couldn't run as the sort of, uh, you know, red Tory that Peter McKay was because then he's fighting over the same voters. So his his challenge right now will be to, yes, somehow keep the social conservative um, part of the coalition inside the tent while at the same time broadening the base and reaching out to find those other million voters. And, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the conservative party is just a non-factor in too many parts uh, of this country right now, particularly in the in the cities of this country, and that's where most of the voters are. But conservatives can win when people are tired of the liberals, and there is some liberal fatigue right now. We're seeing that with all Mm -hmm. the scandals that have been happening. And conservatives can win when they look like they've got their act together. And, I mean, that was clearly uh, the case in 1984 for Brian Mulroney, who presented uh, a a polished, uh, future-looking, optimistic, competent vision of conservatism, and the public had had it with the liberals at that point. And who knows, you know, how soon it'll take before we're at that point right now. O'Toole's got a job to do. Uh, interestingly enough, in less than a month, when Parliament comes back, he'll have to make his first big decision, which is, do I vote non-confidence in the throne speech and attempt to bring the government down, risking going to a federal election almost right away in his tenure? That will be an interesting call. It sure will, I, I, which I don't think is going to happen, by the way. I think the NDP will support the government. I, I'm looking at springtime. But I hearken back to, to, again, trying to garner that support. And I, I'll go back to when Patrick Brown was the leader of the Ontario PC party. And uh, they thought they had this in the bag. But, I mean, there's some pragmatic thinking going on within the, the PC caucus then. And you remember the, the People's Charter that he came out with. It was his platform of how they were going to do this. Mm-hmm. He never really got to present that in an election for reasons we don't need to get into now. But uh, a lot of liberals I talked to back in those days said, you know what, I can live with that. If, if this is what they're going to do, because it embraced carbon taxing, but the concept of it anyway, and so many other different things that, uh, that before that conservatives hadn't even talked about. I, I think that's the kind of pivot that the federal conservatives are going to have to make here. Well, and, and that's one of the interesting problems that Andrew Sear had, right, was that when yeah. it came to the environment, I think many Canadians just decided that he had absolutely nothing of relevance to say about the environment. Now, you can disagree with a carbon tax, obviously, and be a good environmentalist. You don't have to walk lockstep with the current government of Canada uh, to be considered a good environmentalist. But you have to 
convey to Canadians that you've got something relevant to say about the environment. And clearly, uh, the Andrew Scheer Conservatives, uh, you know, the public decided had nothing of relevance to say about that, or certainly the vast majority of the public decided that. So, yes, you put your finger on, on another challenge that Aaron O'Toole has, which is to say that he's got to have something relevant. To, you can oppose a carbon tax. As a conservative, he probably will. Uh, but you've got to have something relevant to say about climate change and about how you intend to tackle that. And that's another one of the, you know, <laughs> he's got a pretty big to-do list, eh? He's got a lot of challenges that he's got to figure out in the next very short period of time. Uh, but luckily for him, he's been around politics for a long time. He had his father as a great example of a good and decent man to be in politics. Uh, he'll have no shortage of advice. How he handles Leslie Lewis, though, I think, Bill, is going to be one of the big questions. Uh, on the one hand, isn't this an amazing time for a strong, intelligent black woman to have a position of significance uh, in a political party. And she clearly does. I mean, her star is shining very bright right now. On the other hand, you know, how powerfully or actively she wants to use that position to campaign for social conservative issues, which are a non-starter for probably 80% of Canadians, that's going to be a tricky tightrope to watch. We'll have to see how that goes. Well, this is day one. We'll see how it turns out. Uh, we'll yeah. be watching on the agenda. Steve, as always, thanks so much. Great talking with you again today. All the best. Take care, Bill. Take care. Steve Pakin, of course, host of The Agenda with Steve Pakin on TVO. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The day after the uh, Conservatives chose a new leader, well, the day after in Western Canada, anyway, it was about 1 o'clock in the morning here in the East. Uh, so what are the ramifications uh, as they move forward on this? Uh, are we heading for an election in the next uh, couple of weeks? Because, uh, you know, when Parliament resumes... In uh, the third week of September, of course, there will be a, a th another speech from the throne, which will also bring about a confidence vote. Uh, does the Conservative government vote to bring down the government at this stage or not? Let's talk with uh, Christopher Waddell, professor in the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University. Uh, Chris, great to have you back in the program. I hope you uh, arrested after staying up late last night. I have to admit, I watched the Raptors game for part of the So did I. Yeah, I was channel surfing back and forth. I figured, how am I going to do both of these? And as soon as they said it's going to be delayed, I thought, oh, thank you. Okay, I can watch the game now. And I, I checked back at the end of each quarter. And so they're still not going, still not going. It was after midnight before they finally started counting the ballots. Well, before they finally released the results. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which, and, by and, the way, and, go ahead. I was going to say, and... and, and it was clear, I think, from the time the first results came in that, that Mr. McKay was not going to do very well because he, he needed to have a lot of, he needed to be close to 50% on the first ballot. And he was, of course, barely at, a, at 33%. So, uh, it, the final result, once the first results came in, I don't think was a surprise because Mr. O'Toole had done a lot more than Mr. McKay had to try to, um, position himself to take the votes from Leslie, um, Lewis and from Derek Sloan by, by, being more supportive of social conservative um, policies than Mr. McKay had been. Let me ask you about process here, and, and, and I don't know that it matters a whole lot to people, but I mean, this was supposed to get underway, they told us anyway, uh, around 7 o'clock, and they said, oh, by 9 o'clock we'll be home and gone, and, and you guys can go back to watch your Stanley Cup or your Raptors or whatever you want to do. Uh, I saw one tweet from somebody who said, look, these guys couldn't organize a two-car parade, uh, let alone a, a leadership race. Now, I don't think that's the th thinking of everybody, but they had a chance here in prime time on a Sunday uh, to really put on a show, and they, they failed miserably at it. Does, does that have an impact at all? I don't think it really does. I mean, the, the one qualifier on that, too, is it was prime time in the middle, you know, on a nice Sunday summer night, um, which may min minimize the amount you can get in terms of an audience. To me, it's a bit like the argument 
whenever an election, in the days when we didn't have um, uh, fixed election dates and a government would call election, people would get all upset about why are they calling an election now? And a week after the election started, everyone would be caught up in the election and no one would be worried about that anymore. And and two or three weeks down the road or even less, I don't think the, the, the problems... Uh, they've got some internal issues to deal with in terms of why do these things keep happening, but I don't think it's going to persuade anyone who is going to vote for the Conservatives or thinking about voting for the Conservatives, not voting for them in the next election because of what happened in the leadership race. Where do they go from here? I, and, and I mean from a philosophical standpoint. I was just talking with Steve Pakin, of course, uh, from, from the agenda on TVO. Uh, after the uh, loss by Andrew Scheer in the last federal election, uh, there was some talk that, well, these guys, are the, the, meaning the party, are going to have to move more to the middle. Uh, I, I don't know that you can characterize Aaron O'Toole as, as, a, as a moderate in any stretch of the imagination. I know he wants to try to portray himself as one. I know we talked last night uh, about trying to appeal to Quebecers, LGBTQ Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, union members, and recent immigrants. He mentioned all of them in his acceptance speech last night. Problem is, the conservative policies don't really reflect that. I think that's fair. I mean, the, the, the one positive they have is they've got the leader who is in the House of Commons already. Had it been yeah. Mr. McKay, he didn't have a seat in the House. So when Parliament resumes on the 23rd, <clears throat> Mr. O'Toole will be there. And he'll be there every day to ask questions of Mr. Trudeau and of other members of the government, which is, which is probably a more important positive for them than whatever happened last night in terms of when his speech actually was, over the, the medium to longer term. But I think you've hit upon a key point, and, and we saw it last night as well in Andrew Shear's remarks, is that the big problem that Mr. Scheer um, didn't address during his term as leader is the policies the party had all during Mr. Term, Scheer's term were really policies that were designed to um, for the people who were existing members of the party and weren't the policies that appealed to urban Canada and weren't policies that appealed to suburban Canada. And we saw that on election night. The challenge Mr. O'Toole will face is, I think you're right, Bill, to do that, to try to find policies that have a broader range of support than the existing party membership. But at the same token, the social conservative support he now has from the anti-abortion groups and from some of those organizations are going to give the liberals ammunition to keep throwing that issue back at him. And that they threw back at him fairly successfully, threw back at Mr. Scheer fairly successfully in the last election campaign. So how he's going to manage um, walking what's a bit of a tightrope there will be interesting to see in the next little while. I'm glad you brought up Scheer's speech. I wanted to ask you about that anyway. Um... It, it 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 kind of struck me as uh, as as Richard Nixon's uh, 1962 speech when he lost the gubernatorial race in California. I'm leaving politics, and you don't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Uh, this was he, there was a lot of bitterness still in his leaving, comments. Right, he's, Mr. Shear staying as an MP. Yeah, so he's not he's not leaving. he's not leaving politics. <laughs> but you're right. But you're right. Otherwise, it was it was it, it's been a strange campaign from start to finish. The fact that uh, that there was no actual event, people weren't really there. Uh, there was no one really to speak to except people at home uh, who weren't doing what you were doing, switching back and forth to the Raptors <laughs> game. Uh, and and so it, it was a strange evening in that respect. It was so different from a traditional convention. And his speech didn't make it any less strange because it really was um, a, a speech that kind of demonstrated that he really didn't get what happened or didn't get why he lost and probably gave some ammunition for people who were if anyone was saying, why are we doing this in the middle of August, Mr. any conservatives were saying, why are we doing this in the middle of August, Mr. Shear's speech probably gave them an answer. If I had been consulted, and I wasn't, by the way, by the conservatives on, on how to put this whole thing together, uh, I wouldn't have had Andrew Shear speak at all yesterday. That, this was not his day. It was supposed to be a, a, a day to, to anoint a new leader, not to look back, which is exactly what he tried to do. 
Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Again, they they got. I suspect they probably got caught in the traditional format that you have in leadership conventions, where where you know you have a leadership convention that may be Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, Saturday is the vote, and Saturday night you select the new leader. Uh, but Thursday night you normally have a tribute to the outgoing leader. Friday you do the speeches of the of the candidates, and then Saturday people actually vote when you can vote physically, in and all be in a in in a hockey rink or or, or an auditorium somewhere. Um, when you can't do that, you then end up with the, with the situation they have, and but they still felt and and there's, I can understand to some degree why you'd want to do that. The the leader has been an important person, and a leader in a party is at any given time, and 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 you want to thank him or her for the work that they've done leading up to the convention. But it but it just was not it it, it didn't work. Well, especially because after the last election, when everybody, I, I guess, including many people in the Conservative Party, thought it was theirs to win, and right. they lost it, uh, the message almost the next day from a lot of conservatives on on social media, especially on Twitter, was, uh, "Look, Andrew, don't let the door hit you on the way out." I mean, you know, and some of the stuff that Peter McKay tweeted and some of the other folks, uh, well, he was not welcome, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I guess under that pressure he finally decided to step aside. And, and of course, this thing we had last night was was the end result of that whole thing. But, well, and, don't, and, don't, and don't forget, one of the reasons they also stepped inside was that inside, aside, I mean, was that there was a fairly serious campaign against him from within. The yeah. climax with people leaking about his children going to private school and it being paid for by the party. And, and if you ask me, that would not have been a generally known fact except by a very few people inside senior ranks of the party. So clearly someone decided they wanted to um, um, speed his departure and they did that. So... There was clearly not much love lost between anybody by that point, and that came in you know, November, December. Chris, does this put a new face on the Conservative Party? Uh, you know, it's, a, it's not a new name. O'Toole's been there. He was, he was in Cabinet before when the Conservatives, of course, had government. Uh, and so he's, uh, he's not new to the game. He's certainly not new to Canadians. Uh, he may be new to a lot of them as, as a political leader, though. Does he have an opportunity to put his brand on this? I think I, 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 whenever a new leader comes in, he does, uh, he or she does. Um, the question is, how will, how will that be done? And the other thing we don't really know is how is COVID-19 going to have an impact on the traditional ways politicians have built their, their, um, their image and their reputation, which is by appearances in Parliament and also by being able, being able to go out and meet people and do things um, um, across the country. I mean, if you go back to other leaderships, go back as far as Brian Mulroney in 1983, when he won, he didn't have a seat. And in fact, he spent a fair amount of time going out to events and meeting people and doing things across the country and appearing across the country at different sorts of events, whether it's, you know, um, um, Chamber of Commerce lunches, um, other events, those sorts of things. Um, COVID-19 has kind of uh, canceled all of that. And, and so how you do that in that period in, under those circumstances becomes much more, more difficult. But one way you do it, I think, is to um, recognize that if the party wants to win the next election, it needs to find a way to be more attractive to urban Canadians and and outside of Edmonton and Calgary, um, where they did moderately well and but they did well in both those cities. But in much of the rest of Canada, uh, uh, they didn't do that well, and they also need to to build something in Quebec, and that's going to be a challenge as long as the Bloc Québécois is there, I think, and doing being as effective as they are. So we'll see how effective he turns out to be as a, an opposition leader and. And how the party, um, so far I don't think you could identify many policies that the Conservative Party has that are different than the Liberals have for dealing with, um, with the aftermath and the economic recovery. 
Um, that may be encouraged by the throne speech, and however the Liberals lay themselves lay their policies out in the throne speech, that may allow the Conservatives to differentiate themselves more. Um, we'll have to see. Yeah, and that uh, uh, reaching out to urban voters is going to be a very difficult process because, uh, as, as we talked about, even when Andrew Scheer won the leadership, uh, it was the social conservative uh, element of the party that really got behind him and got him over the top. Same thing happened last night with, uh, with Aaron O'Toole to a large extent. Uh, and and that's a, a wing of the party that may not be comfortable with some of the things they may have to propose to try to attract those urban voters. That's certainly true, um, but they also... Are very well. They're very well organized, and they provide a fair amount of financial support for the party. So, sure do. Can't, if there's a leader, you can't you can't afford to ignore them. So, it's a, it's a difficult um, it's difficult, uh, and we'll also see um, how they want to deal with with issues such as longer term unemployment that comes out of um, however the recovery occurs in the country, and and also the other big issue that we face is. Whether Canada likes it or not, whatever happens in the United States has a big impact on Canada, and oh, yeah. we'll see how they, how Mr. Sh- uh, Mr. Um, Mr. O'Toole and the Conservatives want to position themselves in the context of whatever's going to happen in the U.S. presidential election, and equally, whatever's going to happen in the U.S. economy. Because don't forget, we've also got some other issues out there, like the aluminum tariffs that took effect a week or so ago, um, and Mr. Trump being Mr. Trump, you never know what else he might come up with in an attempt to try to get reelected between now and November. So, so. Um, Mr. Trudeau has probably benefited a lot from differentiating himself from Mr. Trump. Mr. O'Toole may have to do some of that, too, and that may be a little more difficult for conservatives to do. We'll have to see. It's going to be very difficult because it's an unknown, I mean, what's going to happen in the States. Notwithstanding yeah. what happens on November the 3rd or the 4th or whenever they're going to get the results, uh, Donald Trump's going to be the president until at least January 21st. I mean, he may have to give up the, the job or he's going to have another four years. Right. But on the other side of that coin, Chris, your point's well taken. There are protectionists in the Democratic Party as well uh, yes. who who would look at these tariffs and say, yeah, that's a good idea. We need to do that to pr- protect American jobs. Mm-hmm. So the Canadian government, whomever it's going to be, has got their hands, their work cut out for them and their hands, t- one hand tied behind their back, really. Uh, it's not as if Joe Biden wins the election. They're just going to say, oh, all, all, it's all good. We're going to be friends. What can we do for you, Canada? There's going to be some pretty serious negotiations going on. Yes, and there's also other issues just like, how long is the border going to stay closed? And and until the United States gets to a better grip with COVID-19 than it appears to have up to this point, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure in Canada to keep the border closed as well. And that has an impact as well. And if the U.S. recovery, um, there's also some signs that the Canadian recovery may be happening a little better than the U.S. recovery. If that's true as well, that won't last for too long, I don't think, because a lot of our recovery will depend on how successful the United States recovers from the problem. On uh, the West Block on Global on the weekend uh, with Mercedes Stevenson, Pierre Polgarev was there, uh, who's one of the louder voices, of course, in the Conservative caucus. And he all but admitted that, look, we're not going to bring down the government uh, after the, the throne speech in the fall. Uh, now, his rationale was, he said, we want to find out more about the WE scandal and everything. I'm not so sure that that's necessarily it. Maybe the polling tells them that, that Canadians don't really want an election. Uh, the ones we're talking to on our program on a regular basis, Chris, are more concerned about whether or not their kids are going to go back to school, how long this pandemic is going to go on, the economic impact of it and everything else. Uh, it would make political sense to just kind of hold your powder for the time being. I, I think maybe a spring election, but I don't think you'll see anything before Christmas. What are your thoughts? I don't, I don't, I, I don't understand the whole discussion about an election at all, Bill. I mean, um, let me ask you a couple of questions. If you were, would you work for a candidate and go knocking door to door? No, how would you? Would you, would you, would I, I, you I don't feel comfortable you, going to a restaurant. Why would I go knocking door to door with strangers? 
would you sit in a campaign office for six or eight hours a day helping a candidate work on their campaign? Of course not. You couldn't do that. And, and, and particularly when you consider, and even more particularly for the conservatives, um, at least all the campaigns I've seen, a core of the people who work on campaigns end up being retired people and senior citizens, partly because they have time, partly yeah. because they're interested. Um, are they going to go sit in campaign offices? I can't imagine it. And, and, and so, so to me, all this talk of an election at the moment seems to be kind of ignoring the fact that I don't think people are going to work in it. And if you, and elections take a huge number of people to, to, um, to work. Now, the interesting thing that's happened politically is, yes, Mr. Trudeau appears to have been hurt by public, uh, some public opinion polls suggest his, his support has gone down. But there's not been much evidence so far that that support has gone anywhere else. So, in other words, it hasn't gone to the Conservatives, it hasn't gone to the Democrats or, or, or the Green Party, who have their own leadership coming up in, in, in start of October. Um, so, so, it's not, I think, the other thing that the Conservatives need to consider, I mean, I suspect Mr. O'Toole will vote to defeat the government, and that's the opposition sees it as their job in part, and he will rely on someone else to support the Liberals, and that someone else is almost certainly going to be the New Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that, that, that the Conservatives traditionally benefit from a strong NDP vote because the NDP siphons off votes that otherwise would be going to the Liberals. And at the moment, the NDP is kind of mired where they were last time. They need to be, for the Conservatives to have a better chance if there were to be an election, when there's an election, they always do better when the NDP is stronger, and that's not happening at the moment either. So I think we'll see lots of theater in, in September, but I don't think we're going to see uh, uh, an election maybe. And, and much as everything else in our lives at the moment, I think COVID-19 and how that happens over the next few months and whether it comes back or doesn't come back and, and in what sort of force will be the biggest determinant about when an election might be. Well, and, and those two things are, are not dissimilar. I mean, when you look at that, I mean, there might be a lot of uh, concern about the, the way the prime minister has reacted and 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 you know acted uh, vis-a-vis we and a couple of other things. Mm-hmm. But polling before all that hit the fan, Chris basically said that Canadians, in large part, are pretty happy with the way he's handled the pandemic uh, vis-a-vis the relief programs and things of that nature. And, and if the conservatives learned anything in the last election, is that uh, this guy may be down, but you can't count him out all the time because you just don't know. Well, and, and at least in Ontario, which is a very important um, uh, province for the Conservatives, they have to do well if they want to form a government. I imagine the Liberals are going to be playing a lot of that tape of Doug Ford congratulating Mr. Trudeau um, last week at the, at the mask factory in, in yeah. Brockville. So, so it, it, the timing is not right, and, and um, there'll be lots of noise, um, but it's hard to imagine that it's actually going to, going to happen. And, and, uh, and, um, it, and Mr. O'Toole also needs time to to recreate however he wants to create the party in in to be his as the leader and, and to take over from what Mr. Shear had. Which is, yeah, one of the major problems, and I guess one of the major challenges right now. How do you make it Aaron O'Toole's party? That takes time, doesn't it? It does. It takes different people. It takes time. And then it, it takes different people at the top, but then whatever different ideas they might have about what's important or what to do and how to do it, you then have to go down to lower levels in the party and 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 actually implement the change. So, you know, normally you would think it would be, that would probably take six months to a year to actually happen at least. And that would be in normal times where you could actually have meetings and could get people together and you wouldn't have to do it all over computer video conferences. Chris, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time uh, on a busy, busy day today. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Bill.
Take care. Chris Waddell, of course, professor in the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Travel during COVID-19. A recent uh, article suggesting that people are going out and traveling. Uh, I'd like to think it's not because I think COVID-19 is over and we've already slayed the beast because we haven't. But let's face it, it's summertime. People are still taking vacations and they are going away, uh, staying away from home for a while. Some of them out of the country, in fact. Uh, the problem is some of them are bringing COVID cases back into the city when they finally return. Uh, not a huge number, but you know, a number that's just the same has to be considered. Paul Johnson is the Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Paul, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about this. and I, I don't want to start fear-mongering and say, oh, my God, don't leave your house or you're going to infect everybody in your neighborhood <laughs> and in your family with it, too. Uh, but I, I guess it stands to reason if if we go outside of our bubble uh, to a, a cottage or maybe, you know, go visit another city, whatever the case might be, I, technically it does increase your risk of, of contracting the, the the virus, doesn't it? Well, well, it can, and it all depends on how people go about things. And and the reality is when you go and do more things, you're going to come in contact with more people. If you do uh, travel and are, you're uh, spending time with a, a different group of people than your, your social circle, for instance, and if we break down on some of the basic uh, public health uh, you know, prevention measures include, in terms of the spread of this virus, uh, then that, that challenge increases. And, you know, when you're going away on vacation, uh, you are typically doing things that put you into those higher risk categories, eating at restaurants or on patios, uh, spending time with people, being in places with uh, with new groups of people and, and going to stores and other places that you wouldn't normally have gone to. So the potential is certainly there. The good news is it's, it's very small, um, but we need to realize that even going to the cottage, going on a trip uh, where you can travel without uh, having to, to quarantine when you come back home, it's still travel, and I think people need to assign the risk to it. The other piece is, of course, travel outside of the country, and it is critically important when people return from that type of travel that they follow all of the instructions that they are to in terms of quarantine because uh, that's how we we can stop some of the spread uh, when, when people return. And uh, the final thing I'll say is that uh, we're still in a, a situation where people really do need to ask the question about, do I need to? for a lot of the activities that we're doing these days, Bill. And that's not to try and, and be uh, throw cold water on, on people getting back into life. But I do think particularly when it comes to travel and particularly when it comes to travel outside of the country, I really do think people need to sit down and just go through why am I doing this? What's the compelling reason for it? And there's lots of good reasons that people do need to travel. But uh, sometimes maybe it's more that we should put this off for a little bit. Exactly. Well, there was a story over the weekend, I'm sure many of our listeners saw, but a family in uh, St. Thomas, in the London area, uh, that I guess is being investigated by police because they came from, I think, someplace in the States. Uh, and I, a few of the neighbors, I guess, called in and said, look, these guys are not quarantining. They're, you know, they're supposed to be quarantining for 14 days when you come back from outside the country, and they weren't. So I, I don't know how that investigation is going to go. It's not happening a lot here, but I guess the, the area for concern here, Paul, is if you want to go back uh, to March when the, the numbers for COVID really started to spike, it was around March break when a lot of people tended to go on holidays. And, uh, you know, we're into summer season right now. It hasn't ballooned like it did then. But, you know, at the same time, you don't want to tempt fate, do you? No, you don't. And we're heading into this this sort of critical time now where, um, you know, 
things have loosened up a little bit. It is the end of the summer. People are trying to squeeze in those last few weeks of good weather. Uh, during a lot of the good weather, we were really curtailed from doing a lot of things except maybe getting out and exploring our local neighborhoods. So I, I do know that the pressure is there to make that happen. I would say, though, this is very different than what we experienced in March. Back in March, we were still uh, you know, playing a little bit of, of uh, catch-up in terms of, of what was the right approach to take in terms of uh, curtailing this, and it came at the absolute worst time in terms of our uh, start of rise of cases because it did coincide with March break when a lot of people already had plans and some people were already out on those on those excursions. So uh, it is a little different right now. People have knowledge. Uh, they understand uh, the, 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 the challenges that can come, uh, and they also understand the rules. And, and so it's really important we both follow the rules, but also unlike March, where some people maybe were caught a little off guard. They had already started their travel. Right now, no one should be caught off guard and saying, oh, I didn't really realize travel might be a challenge. (laughs) If people are saying that, then I I don't know what information they've been following lately. Well, maybe it's uh, worthwhile for them to do a little homework, too. I mean, if you're you know, want to go in and, you know, to your cottage in Muskoka or up in Blue and Collingwood or places like that. Uh, find out what the COVID levels are like up there. I mean, it's not that difficult to determine. And if it's high, higher than it is here at Hamilton, well, ask yourself, do I really need to do this? And if you're going to, are you going to isolate when you're up there? Uh, I think a lot of people are under the impression, I'm glad we have mandatory mask wearing in, in most places now, Paul. That's a great idea, a great thing. But it's not a shield against everything. I mean, it's 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 going to mitigate the damage, but that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want now, and you're not going to you know be exposed to the virus. We still need to be cautious. We do, and and risk is is a building of a risk. I mean, if if folks are traveling on their own in a very tight group, uh, either on their own, really one person, or with their social circle, family members, or such, not really interacting, going and and in a secondary uh, residence somewhere in 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 the province or or what have you, then, you know, the risk starts to get a little lower. But the more you do, the more people you invite up, the more you interact with neighbors that are at the cottage areas, the more you go out uh, in those areas, uh, the more the risk level goes up. And we're in a period of time now, Bill, where there is no black and white answer. Uh, We're not in that lockdown mode where it was very clear to say, you know, do this, don't do this. Um, we're not in that world anymore. And, and so I can't encourage people enough to think about what they're doing. And I would say this is on a daily basis, as well as obviously if you're planning to take a trip or planning to do something that is, um, you know, that is really new to what you've been doing for the last few months is think through it. As you say, get information and understand how to protect yourself, your family, and most importantly, protect other people. Because that's the other side of this, as, as we know, close contact with people that when they're in that just pre-symptomatic phase uh, is a real source of spread. And that's the evidence that we're seeing is those, those few days before you actually have symptoms, it could be shedding a lot of the virus. And no one wants to do that. I don't know of a single person that wants to go out and infect somebody. The reality is with this virus, you may not know it. And so it's not only about protecting yourself, it's also protecting the other people that are around you. And that's the way we've got to think for quite some time now, Bill. Absolutely. Paul, as always, thanks so much. Great talking with you today. Great. Take care. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton. Uh, the other crisis I want to talk about, and it is now starting to become a crisis, well, first of all, the homeless situation and the tent cities that are cropping up uh, in Hamilton and in London. Uh, and I know that city councilors are trying to deal with that. But in a much related issue is uh, the eviction crisis that is occurring. Now, you may remember when uh, Premier Doug Ford announced the, uh, the shutdown of the province uh, some months ago, back in the springtime, he also put a moratorium on, on evictions. Uh, you know, people were losing their jobs. 
or having drastically reduced incomes, and as a result, uh, they couldn't pay their rent, and a lot of them were getting booted out. Uh, so there was a concern about that. So that moratorium was put in place, but it has since come and gone, and evictions are up considerably uh, right across the province. In London and in Hamilton, the, the numbers are extremely high. City Council tried to deal with this the other day at their meeting late last week, and, and a number of councillors, including Councillor Terry Whitehead from the West Mountain, uh, expressed their concern. The reality is, is that it's not normal. It's not normal business. You just have to walk to walk by any restaurant or bowling alley or some of those recreational uh, facilities, and you'll soon um, realize that nothing's normal in regards to uh, the impacts on, uh, on people's ability to make an income. So we need to protect these people. Well, and therein lies the problem. How, how do we do that? Uh, you know, some are suggesting that well then you have to give them temporary accommodation. And, and maybe those tent cities are that answer. There are a number of people in the community that feel that that's the short-term solution to this. Uh, and there's a debate ongoing about that right now, of course, in, in many cities, about how to handle that and how to handle those tent cities and, and uh, those communities that are being set up. Uh, the other side of that coin, though, is what about a long-term solution? What about curbing evictions uh, and, and giving some help here? And the province is going to have to step up here. Uh, it's not it, it, the short-term solution here of uh, putting a moratorium in place is, is not going to solve the problem. It's a band-aid that's it, since come and gone. So let's let's talk about addressing the problem right up front, get it right in the face of the problem, and trying to find some solutions to it. Ismail Abraham is a, a lawyer with a Robbins Appleby LLP uh, who are very concerned about this and, and trying to find some solutions. Ismail, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us on the program today. Um, thank you. Uh, glad to be here. How do we grapple with something like this? You've heard some of the political responses to this, Ismail, but we just can't allow this to happen. Well, the obvious follow-up question from my standpoint is, okay, what are you going to do about it? Well, that's a good question, and there's really no easy answer to this. Uh, that's uh, the problem. It's a complex issue that has a lot of stakeholders and a lot of advocates. Uh, what I'm uh, arguing is that whatever the solution is, the government can't choose winners and losers, and there has to be a fairness in the process that uh, respects both uh, landlords and tenants, but also taxpayers uh, in general. So if you are going to do, a, as you were talking about, an eviction moratorium, um, there has to be something to assist landlords who are taking a lot of the burden right now where tenants are not paying rent. And I know the federal government tried to do that with uh, with some of these uh, relief programs that they offer, but again, those are only temporary programs at the same time. Uh, and and I know it's it's not unlike governments, Israel, to to give us band aid solutions. And you know, in the short term, you think, oh, isn't that great? They've addressed this. Uh, we need to have a, a a hard discussion about what we're going to do long term because this problem, let's face it, even after COVID, the problem's not going away anytime soon. Uh, you're right, uh, and one of the big issues in general in the rental market is. There's a big backlog in um, landlord-tenant board uh, matters. Um, there's a lot of uh, issues with respect to housing in general in affordability. We just don't have enough rental uh, housing uh, overall, um, so that drives the price up. So it has to be a holistic approach to this. And unfortunately, in the past, we've just had bandage solutions, and, and what we're hoping for is um, a bigger uh, holistic view at this whole uh, problem. 
Well, because there have been so many offshoots to this, haven't there? I mean, you know, we've we've heard from tenants uh, that have been evicted, uh, so the landlord can raise the rent on the on the property. Uh, no, there's all sorts of problems going on there. But you're right. Then then you get into the litigious aspect of this too, whether people are going to the board and, and trying to appeal this, uh, and they're waiting a long, long time. Well, they don't have a roof over their head. Uh, that, that's that's certainly not a tenable situation for anybody. So uh, again, there's so many different angles to this whole thing here, and uh, I. I I think it's unfair to, to lay this at the foot of the municipality, any municipal government, Toronto, London, Hamilton, anywhere, and say you guys have to solve this. This is this is really a federal and provincial problem. Well, of course, uh, like the, the municipalities are already strapped as they are. They've taken on a lot of costs associated with COVID. When you look at this COVID situation, um, the basic premise all levels of governments have done, or the basic message that they've all sent is stay home social distance, stay home. But this only works for people with homes. The people who don't have homes, uh, that's the problem. Um, so a lot of municipalities have tried to address this by creating extra shelter spaces, uh, using hotels for shelters and other such means. But the problem is there's all of this cost money. And they've been doing it from their uh, municipal budgets. In the long term, they have to be um, paid back and there has to be a solution to how to deal with this because the COVID situation and all of these rental evictions aren't going to go away. In fact, I think it's going to go higher going forward because to a certain extent, the eviction moratorium has um, kicked the can down the road. Um, the fact that we've had the CERB money has allowed many tenants to be able to pay their rent, but they've lost their jobs. So what's going to happen afterwards when... Uh, the uh, the funding ends and they have to pay their rent and they don't have a uh, job. So so I think the problem, uh, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg at this point. Well, especially here in Ontario, because, I mean, we were one of the, the provinces that did not uh, implement a freeze on rent increases. So somebody who may be in that dire circumstance that you just described uh, may, on top of all of that, be faced with a rent increase at, at the end of their lease, too. And they, you know, if they don't have any steady income and they don't have a job where they, there's income they can count on, where do they go? What do they do? Uh, I'm not as concerned about the rent increase freeze, um, partly because what we're seeing is close to eight to ten percent decrease in rental from the uh, from the market in general. There are people moving, people are being evicted, and other reasons. So we're already seeing uh, rental housing is not being used for Airbnb and similar things. So we're already seeing the market. Uh, go down by 10%. So it's going to be a foolish landlord that decides, you know, at this type where there's all of these empty units and the fact that the market is down by 10%, that I'm going to try to increase the rent on my current tenants. Um, I'm hoping that uh, landlords are smarter than that. Um, but uh, to me, the priority isn't on a rental freeze. It's on dealing with all of the other issues uh, that arise. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. It's further down the list. Uh, multifaceted problem and concern. I, I'm glad that, that you and so many others are speaking up and, and putting this in front of our elected officials, and hopefully it's uh, it's going to be a catalyst for the conversation. Ismail, thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you. I know this this is uh, an ongoing problem. I'd love to talk to you again in a few weeks and just see what kind of progress, if any, is being made. It sounds great, and uh, thanks for uh, hosting me.
Take care. Ismail Ibrahim with uh, Robbins Appleby LLP, uh, based out of Toronto. But this is a province, well, it's a national problem, not just an Ontario problem. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.